Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Erica Mather, the author of Your Body, Your Best Friend. She's also a lineage holder of Anna Forest Yoga, which she teaches in New York City. Hear her recount her journey of loss after losing her father at a young age, coping with a chronic illness, and having the courage to walk away from one career, forging a new, more meaningful life. Please welcome Erica Mather. Welcome, Erica. So I always ask the one big question to kind of get us started on um, our wonderful conversation. So the question is, was there an event in your life that posed an incredible challenge that might have reshaped the direction of your life? A few of them, I think. Uh, I think the death of a parent does that pretty fast. Um, my father died when I was in my early 20s. And that really catapulted me into uh, self-employment, honestly, because he was, a, he was a corporate employee. And I saw so fast how the corporation did not care about him. <laughs> oh, wow. and, and I was not going to be part of that. I mean, it, it caused so much stress in his life and so much... <sighs> Angst about his self-worth to be um, at, a, at, a, at the point of inflection for him. It was a merger and then he had to reapply for his own job, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, th- this was the 90s when this was happening. So I, um, I saw that and I just decided I'm going to be my own person. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the captain of my own ship and I am not going to work for people who don't care about me. So there was that point of inflection, which was which was pretty huge, and I think um, it's it's uh, made me have ultimate responsibility for the direction of my life because you can't be like, ah, oh, my boss is such a jerk. I'm I'm the jerk. <laughs> if that's the case, you know, if, if I'm unhappy with anything about my work life or my relationship life or my friendship life or my family life or my spiritual life, I got one person to to really point a finger at. Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. And I know that for people who, you know, whose one parent or parents die, there is a sense of obviously immense grief and loss, but there's also a sense of kind of moving into your own space. And I don't want to use the word liberation because that feels kind of callous, but a sense of you are really truly an adult. You know, like you don't become an adult until that happens. And, and that sense of really owning your own life. Did that, did you experience that even at such a young age? I think what you're describing is, is the feeling of parental expectation disappearing. Mm. And yeah, that's what you're describing. And 
So in a certain way, yes. And in another way, no, I have an, you know, a a overbearing mother. She was still around, (laughs) Uh, you know, and my father was never the person who applied pressure to me. So more what I felt like was I wanted one of the remainder of my life, you know, at that tender age of 23, I, you know, I wanted the remainder of my life. (laughs) I wasn't looking very far to be a tribute in a way to the things that he that he really valued in me as a person. And, you know, maybe looking back, I can see that, you know, he valued my creativity, he valued my intelligence. And, you know, it set me on a path of writing some music and really doubling down on being a professional musician. So the the parental expectation didn't lift. It just kind of like, it really just pushed me into like, Life is tender and fragile and could be gone all too soon. He was 56 when he died. And yeah, so it really sort of put into perspective, right? If if I have half my life left, right? Because, you know, 25 is half of 50. So, you know, if I have like half my life left, what do I want to do with it? And I was certain I didn't want to be any of the things that I had been to date working for other people. I wanted to be my own person. And I think that my dad very often regretted not being his own person. Although as he died, he told me that he had no regrets. So I think that's a pretty uh, uh, inspirational place of aspiration is to be on death's doorstep and have no regrets. Yeah, that was a real inflection point of moving me into full responsibility for the financial aspects of my own life. And And, you you alluded mm -hmm. to a second or another event. Could you tell us what the other event might've been? Yeah. The other event was after I left graduate school. So I, I moved it and it sort of revolves around this as well as I moved to New York City and I was enrolled in Columbia in a PhD program in ethnomusicology. And it pretty swiftly became apparent to me that we weren't a good fit. Like Columbia and I weren't a good fit. Maybe ethnomusicology and I weren't a good fit. Maybe academia and I weren't a good fit. But many sort of layers of this was just not a good fit. And so I I took a year of medical leave because my migraine headaches were particularly thorny uh, during this period of my life, go figure. And so I took a year of medical leave to kind of sort it out. And at that point, I realized that, you know, I didn't have that many marketable skills. Uh, you know, I was a good teacher and, and that, and I was a musician, a piano player and piano teacher, but I've swiftly realized like, oh, I don't have a way to make a living. (laughs) And so here was this financial pressure again. You know, I was making a living in my hometown in Madison, Wisconsin as a professional musician and a piano teacher and a a band director. But it was just, I didn't want to go back to that. I felt like that was really taking a step backwards. And so the point of inflection was, how am I going to reshape myself in New York City? And, and specifically in New York City, because I didn't want to go back to my hometown. And I think that New York City shapes people in extraordinary ways. And I felt a real desire, a real longing to stay and to figure out how to stay. And that was... I mean, at that point, I sort of had 
uh, wrong calculations around the economics of teaching yoga. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, you only realize the correct calculations once you're in it for a while. Yes. So, so I thought it was a great idea to become a yoga teacher. And maybe it was because, you know, 16 years later, I'm still doing it. <laughs> so that was the point of inflection was um, I left graduate school. My boyfriend at that time uh, moved back to the Midwest and that forced a breakup. So it was, it was a very traumatic time and a traumatic point of inflection where I was determined not to go backwards. I was determined to go forwards. And I really had very little idea about what I was going to do. I just was like, I'm going to go to this forest yoga teacher training and figure it out. And well, here we are. (laughs) You made casual mention of your migraine. And I know that this is something you've battled for a very long time. Can you give us sort of a, a brief history of it in terms of when it started, kind of where you are with it today? Yeah. So I started having adult onset migraines in my 20s. So I was 26. But when I look back, I had a real first like instance of it uh, when I was in high school. Uh, was probably when I had my first migraine. And it was actually what brought me to yoga. Because at the time, as many people have heard, like yoga could help you with stress-related systemic um, illness. And that's basically what migraines are is kind of like a systemic illness. So that's actually what got me to yoga in hopes that I could cure myself. I was looking for a cure. And today I still experience migraines, but I don't at all regret, um, that migraines brought me to yoga. I am currently kind of exploring some potential like um, uh, organ-related, how would we say, organ-related, I don't even know how to describe it. I think that there might be something wrong with my liver and that that might be creating a metabolic problem with regards to estrogen and alcohol and other things. I I have migraines still. And uh, I think if you have chronic illnesses, you know, you go through this cycle of hopelessness and hopefulness and, and you never know. It could change one day, just the same way that it changed for the worse. It could change for the better. You never know. So I am determined to just keep exploring while at the same time, uh, you know, tending to the migraines when they come up, which means taking prescription medication and, and proceeding to soldier on and look for all possible solutions. Well, that's a really great segue to go back to this, uh, Mm. that moment, your inflection moment when you uh, realized that perhaps music was not, you know, the profession Mm. for you and you went down to, uh, went down the road of, I'm going to study with Anna Forrest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that moment and that journey and perhaps connecting it to this idea of disconnection from your own body. Cause I would imagine that process made you examine your body rather closely. Yeah. So in order to be a professional musician in New York city, you have to engage in a nightlife. That's, that's when it happens. Right. And 
I, one of the things that, that any neurologist will tell you is that regular sleep is kind of important to regulate your brain and your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And nightlife doesn't really support that idea. That <laughs> pivot into my excursions in forest yoga and with on a forest uh, led me into further examination of how I relate to my body, but also how my body is responding to me and how my body is responding to the world. And then also like, is something we talk about sometimes in yoga, ancestral trauma. Like yeah. how, mu- how much of this actually is mine and how much of this is just sort of coming through my genealogy. And if it's coming through my genealogy, then it's, it's like even bigger than me. It's, I mean, it's, it's not my fault per se, but it's also like an inheritance from my ancestry. And I don't really want to blame them because blame isn't useful. That's not a great strategy for um, resolution or healing. So forest yoga, because it teaches embodiment so strongly, opened me to a lot of a lot of different ways of looking at what was going on in my body and in my spirit. And these were useful frames of reference that I otherwise didn't have and weren't offered to me by the medical community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the answers you'll get to migraines from the medical community is basically like, well, we don't know, but maybe take some vitamin B and magnesium and zinc and see how that works. Or maybe there's something wrong with your neck and maybe we should you know, put Botox in it, or maybe you should see a chiropractor, or maybe we should do an MRI and make sure there's not something wrong with your brain, or maybe we should do biofeedback. But mostly what they say is try a prescription medication. Right. And that's great. That is what I'm so grateful for prescription medication. I just got to say, that's a wonderful thing because it's allowed me to be a functional human. And some of my decisions around my life my work life have been steered by this because I was not sure at a certain point if I was not going to be disabled. And if I'm disabled, then I can't work. And if I can't work, then what do I do? And the the yoga world will have other solutions for you. And I think that a marriage of the two is is really helpful and supportive and potentially powerful. And some of the things that I learned in forest yoga was like how to uh, rehabilitate my neck from my athletic life and from my my musical life. Also, how to support my entire physiology with better breathing. Also, how to uh, monitor emotions that go undigested and try to digest them more swiftly so that I don't create a backlog of pressure that then makes me angry and then I get a headache. <laughs> how, to, uh, how to monitor the symptoms that are coming from my body and take care of them better. Like recently, it's been dehydration. Um, and if you don't have a relationship with your body, it'll be hard to monitor signs that it's giving you. Like, I'm not feeling well. And then can you, so you've written this wonderful book about body accept, uh, acceptance, um, body image. Can you talk about what that's like in the profession in which, in a way, there's a performative level to what we do, right? 
And there's a level of being observed and being looked at. And how did that affect your own kind of uh, relationship with your body? And, and then more importantly, how did that propel you to write this book? Whether it's um, cult of personality or uh, an exhibition of advanced work. Uh, and I think that it's, if, if our, if our system sits anywhere kind of in like creating uh, a response from an audience, it's, it sits in the inspirational category. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. we're, 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 we're trying to inspire people. And for every yoga teacher, uh, there will be some sort of interplay around how do you feel about being viewed and how do you, uh, how do you resolve that feeling about being viewed with your desire to teach? I think that it was an arc of um, coming to understand how people respond to me physically. Right. Because, and I think I, I write about this in the book that actually part of, part of our maturity around body image is coming to understand how people might react to you. And then managing your own response to that reaction. <laughs> and right. also like trying to move people's reactions to you in one direction or another, according to the scenario. So as a tall, busty, curvy, kind of, I think the words that usually are you know, applied to me are like statuesque and you know, things like that. Rubenesque, sometimes um, uh, authoritative, that to come to an understanding about how people respond to those characteristics, and then to feel how that response moves my own feeling about myself inside. So then, can you go back to um, what was the impetus for writing this book? Was there a oh, moment yeah. or something that you'd been kind of ruminating about forever and ever and ever. And finally, one day you said, damn it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a book book proposal, send it in and see what happens. (laughs) Well, I wish I could say that it was born out of like a real desire to be of service, Uh, but it was born out of a real desire to develop more sustainable strategies for my work life. Can you be more specific? Yeah. um, I wanted to not be married to teaching yoga classes for the rest of my life. Uh, and so I, I was trying to understand what were some of my options. And right now at our current time in the world, I think that you are seeing many yoga teachers arrive at the conclusion that I arrived at um, in 2014, which was that running online programs is, is the pivot. Right. And so the book actually was born out of a like, what kind of a program could I offer? And the problem that I discovered that I had some expertise in was this body image thing. So can you tell us the title of your book so the audience knows? Yeah, sure. It's called Your Body, Your Best Friend, semicolon. No, not semicolon, colon. (laughs) And the confidence-crushing pursuit of unrealistic beauty standards and embrace your true power. How, I mean, how did you come Mm. up with, you know, 
what you wanted to say in quite the chronology in which you say it. Um, I, I feel like the book is incredibly beautifully layered um, mm. with practical advice, but also enough esoteric and philosophical things thrown in to give you some things to think about, right? Mm-hmm. So can you tell us um, what, like, what was the impetus of that? And was there something that you just kept thinking about over and over again as you or were actually in the writing process of the book itself? So the design of the book sprung out of my experience, but also my experience as a teacher and as a student of yoga. And as a teacher of yoga, I think that the way that we present yoga education is kind of bizarre. It's just sort of like whoever shows up, we teach whoever shows up and we respond to the moment, which is an incredible skill. But from an educational standpoint, it's kind of bizarre, right? Imagine mm-hmm. if, for instance, you were teaching, I don't know. A writing class. And I was like, okay, was whoever say, shows oh, up. <laughs> yeah, a writing class. Yeah, exactly. Whoever shows up, we'll just teach, we'll teach whoever comes. It's a, it's a really an, an inane design for education. Right. And so part of you know putting together a program is that things have to be in sequential order. There has to be, to use your word, a chronology. And the chronology of my own, you know, learning and understanding, I think was uh, influenced by my life as a teacher. I think mm-hmm. that as I went to random yoga classes in New York City, where who knows what your what message, what weird, you know, pseudo spiritual message were you going to get right. from day to day? That somehow my brain put it into some order that worked. You know, I've, I've threaded together these very disparate messages, you know, to, to create something cohesive. And so the book is kind of, is a retrospective of what were those messages and how did I frame them in some sort of meaningful chronology to create a solution to a problem that I had personally. Kind of, I mean, if there's one message that would sum up what you want to tell people, you know, what is kind of the main message of the book that you want people to walk away with? I think the main message of the book is to not waste more time on things that don't produce real outcomes in your life. Nice. We have, we have a very finite amount of time. We have a finite amount of energy and time wasted hating the way you look, disliking the way you look, is time wasted. As we wrap up, I like to ask, and I'm not going to ask you about books because you uh, this is, might be too easy. So if <laughs> you could pick one song that would describe your life, what would, what, what would that song be? One song that would describe my life. There is a song that I used to play, um, and I actually can't remember what show it's from. It's a it's a show tune, <laughs> and the lyrics go: "Velvet, I may wish you for the collar of your coat, and fortune shining all along your way." Oh wow! And uh, something else I will wish you. Uh, I can't remember all the lyrics right now, 
But mostly what it is, is it is a prayer, a blessing. I can get you these lyrics maybe for the show notes, Juliana. Yeah, yeah, that would um, be great. Um, but it is, it's, it's a song sung between a parent and a child. Hmm. That's very poignant. And I think, do you think about your dad when you, when you listen to that song? Um, think about humanity. Hmm. Because I think if we all like felt that way for one another, we would be in such a better place, you know? Yeah. And as a teacher, I really hold for all of my students, you know, the highest outcomes in their life. And I treasure the people who hold that for me. And I think that it's actually. It's difficult, actually, to just always be in a place of well-wishing for other people. It is difficult. Yes, it's, yes, it's probably one of the hardest things that, uh, you know, that human beings try to do. Right? Yeah. Ego yeah. and all that other stuff gets in the way of us being able to do that day in and day out without thought, you know, without conditions. Yeah. Let me, I think I got more and maybe you can edit it in. Yes, please. Velvet, I may wish you for the collar of your court coat and fortune smiling all along your way. More I cannot wish you than to hope you find your way, mm. your own true way. That's beautiful. Thank you, Erica. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, uh, I can't wait to sit down to... Uh, edit your show. This is going to be amazing. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune into our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Juliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they go ask me why I do it. I'm going to say this because we going to be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that could or should or would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.